As we implement these NIL changes, our student athletes must remain students and not become employees of colleges and universities. And last, student athletes are not university employees. Their first priority is to be students working towards a college degree. Any legislation must also guarantee that student athletes are still considered students, not employees of an institution. Using NIL to create an employment framework would destroy college sports as we know it. College sports is not a vocation and the participants are not employees. But without proper guardrails and structure, some NIL proposals threaten to undermine the core values of college sports by allowing payments for NIL to serve as pay for play and potentially turning college athletes into employees. First and most importantly, we must recognize that we are dealing with students who are and should remain students and not employees. We cannot allow college athletics to devolve into a pay-for-play system that exists only as a training ground for a handful of future professionals and infringes on the integrity of the recruitment process. The main benefit these students take away is their educational degree. It's not about coming here to earn money and to be an employee. If you elect to be a student athlete, your earnings should benefit all student athletes at your institution. If you want to keep the money and be someone's employees, then go join a professional team. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I've got my episodes there. I've got descriptions, some show notes, and some resources that I provide on an episode-by-episode basis that you can check out for yourselves. I also have a blog that I have been writing in for over two years now, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, this episode is the second in a series of episodes dedicated to an analysis of the actual relationship between the revenue-producing athletes who provide the labor and value in the product of big-time college sports and the universities who benefit from that labor. And as I discussed in our last episode, I'm using a timeline to bring us through the important eras and important milestones in the evolution of the relationship between revenue-producing athletes and universities. And we are now in what I call the first perfect storm period in the history of big-time college sports, and that's 1945 to 1956. And the reason this period is so important is that the NCAA achieved legitimate enforcement authority as a national governing organization, and through that national authority, was able to enforce an agreement among all of the big-time college sports market participants to set a fixed uniform price for the value of revenue-producing athlete labor. And those two transformative events in the history of college sports in America came to be in large part through blind luck and circumstances that were entirely unforeseeable. So to set the stage for our discussion of the perfect storm, 1945 to 1956, I want to talk a little bit about 
where we left off in the last episode. And that was with the 1929 Carnegie Report that analyzed all of the ways that universities were violating principles of amateurism to achieve a competitive advantage in the talent identification and acquisition market in big-time football. And despite the Carnegie Report's admonitions that big-time college football was out of control and that it posed an existential threat to the integrity of higher education and its intellectual mission, you still saw the increase in the popularity of football. You saw that the competition for talent identification and acquisition became even more intense. And a lot of conferences, particularly conferences in the South and institutions in the South, were openly recruiting athletes for their athletic ability with very little regard for their academic capabilities. And then with the conclusion of World War II, there were several external events in America that fundamentally transformed American higher education and American culture. And all of these influences came together as a part of this perfect storm to create a crazy recruiting environment. And I'll just talk about a few of those real quickly. First, you had the passage of the GI Bill, which granted education benefits to World War II veterans. And this opened up an entirely new market in higher education because for the first time in American history, you had a huge population of candidates from the American middle class who, before the GI education benefit, would not have attended college. So you had this massive pool of potential athletes to draw on. And as Walter Byers points out in his 1995 expose on sportsmanlike conduct. A lot of these veterans had played at a really competitive level during World War II on service teams in the various branches, and some of those teams were pretty doggone good. And then you had three other important things that came together along with this influx of talent. You had uh, enhanced communications technology, and a lot of that came from World War II technology. So it was much easier in the talent identification and acquisition markets to learn about athletes and to evaluate them and to put together a sophisticated package of recruiting. And you had a dramatic increase in air travel and the availability of air travel and the sophistication of air travel and the speed of air travel. And that single technology transformed America and in the context of college sports, it transformed the footprint for recruiting. So coaches could very easily just jump on a plane and fly to other parts of the country to evaluate talent and to be able to sit down in a recruit's living room who's in a different time zone. And that fundamentally changed the footprint of uh, the recruiting environment from a largely regional footprint to a truly national one. And that also dovetailed with another important event, and this was also technology-driven, and that was the mainstreaming of television technology and television's impact on the business of big-time college sports. And we talked about that in detail during the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes. 
So you had all of these powerful external events coming together to create an insane recruiting environment. And there was an, a sense that something had to be done, and it had to be done at the national level. And driving this frenzy was this essential feature of big-time college sports, which has had a profound impact on the evolution of the business model, and that is the outright war to acquire or prevent from losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. And the very nature of that dynamic in the business model of the evolving big-time college sports marketplace lent itself to suspicion and uh, irrational fears about what the other guy's doing or the other region's doing or the other conference is doing. And that really was a motivating factor in a rift that developed based on regional lines between the southern schools and the northern and midwestern schools. And those regional battle lines had an obvious racial component to it. Because what was happening is that schools from the North and the Midwest were recruiting African-American athletes from the South who were prohibited by Southern law or practice, not only from playing on football teams in the South, but from even attending those institutions. So you had these Northeastern and Midwestern schools bringing some of the best talent in the overall talent pool nationwide into their schools. And the Southern schools, who refused to relent on their segregationist practices, instead felt like they were at a competitive disadvantage. So they ignored any rational conceptualization of amateurism and went with the full athletic athletic scholarship, and they were trying to poach the best white athletes. And they felt like the only way that they could remain competitive was to offer something better than what the Northern and Midwestern schools were offering in order to try to get the best white players to come South. And it was just this insane form of competition that was rooted in some of the worst instincts in the American psyche. But there was a complete distrust there. And the Northern and Midwestern schools did not offer full athletic scholarships. They claimed to be adhering to a principle of amateurism because they were offering scholarships based on merit and need. And the Southern schools didn't believe that. The Southern schools thought they were cheating. They thought they were offering underhanded benefits. And so this distrust led to this really unhealthy, racially tinged environment. And the, the sense was that there had to be some resolution to the conflict and that it required a national solution. So in 1946... The NCAA and conference officials from all over the country met in what was called the Conference of Conferences, and there was some agreement, at least at the broad brush level, that the NCAA had the opportunity to come in as a national regulatory body and craft a compromise that would address the recruiting and subsidizing issues and at least theoretically 
resolve all these temptations to cheat and to engage in all the practices that the Carnegie Report identified in 1929, which had only gotten worse. And the primary vehicle for inducing athletes was through using the athletics scholarship, the pure athletics scholarship. And so the the battle lines there were really drawn between the full athletic scholarship, which was an viewed as an undeniable form of payment, of professionalization of college sports, pay for play. And then this other extreme where the athletes could only be admitted to the university under the same standards as regular students. And if they didn't meet those standards, then they wouldn't be admitted. And their athletic ability and prowess was irrelevant to the decision on whether to admit them. And through this conference, the participants put together a document titled The Principles for the Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics that came to be known as the Sanity Code. And the Sanity Code was a really interesting, I think odd, compromise between these two positions, full pay-for-play through athletic scholarships versus zero consideration of athletic ability and admission only if the candidate met the same admissions requirements that all other students had to adhere to. So Under the Sanity Code, this compromise was brokered where schools could seek out athletes for their athletic talent, and they could pay their tuition only if the athlete could establish financial need. And then there were allowances that an athlete could receive above and beyond tuition if he could demonstrate superior academic achievement and performance. Now, that formulation of the fundamental eligibility for athletic-related um, aid under the Sanity Code crosses this Rubicon from amateurism into professionalism because athletic ability is essentially the threshold criteria for the award of these types of scholarships. So to soften the appearance of what was now obviously a professional contract, the money could not be withdrawn if a student chose not to play. So this basic framework survived almost two years of debate between 1946 and 1948, and there were still a group of schools, primarily schools in the South, that were adamantly opposed to the Sanity Code or really any form of national regulation that would interfere with their ability to gain an advantage in the talent acquisition market. But the Sanity Code passed in 1948, and along with it, there was an executive regulation passed at the NCAA level that created a constitutional compliance committee, which was designed to be the enforcement mechanism for the Sanity Code. And this was a really important component of the Sanity Code. I would argue perhaps its most important component because it planted the seed for the NCAA being a national uniform regulatory authority with the power and jurisdiction to enforce rules like the Sanity Code, which was, in essence, a compensation limit. And that enforcement jurisdiction and authority was put to the test almost immediately because just after the Sanity Code was passed, the Southern schools mounted an effort to try to undermine it 
and a number of schools decided that they simply weren't going to comply with it. And they were open about their defiance of the sanity code. And some of the Southern conferences were threatening to secede from the NCAA. And then you had, through the course of this debate and leading up into a, an important vote in 1950, you had a group of schools, seven schools, that were known as the Seven Centers, which interestingly included a couple of schools from the North, Boston College and Villanova. But the other five schools were Southern schools, and they basically drew a line in the sand and said, no, we're not complying. We refuse to comply with the Sanity Code. So just prior to the 1950 convention, NCAA convention, the Constitutional Compliance Committee that was put together by executive regulation, it put on the floor a motion to expel these seven schools for their refusal to comply with the Sanity Code. And a motion to expel required two-thirds of the members to vote yes. And when the motion was put to a vote, there were 111 members that voted yes to expel, and there were 93 that voted no. So even though a majority of schools voted in favor of expulsion, there needed to be uh, a two-thirds majority in order for that to take effect under the NCAA Constitution at the time. So these schools basically won. These seven schools and the Southern conferences who were allied with them won the Sanity Code battle. And the Sanity Code died an ugly death only two years after it was passed. And even though this new enforcement committee and the really the first exercise of enforcement jurisdiction at the national level technically failed because the Sanity Code died with that vote. In fact, it was a win because there did not appear to be any objection to the actual process leading up to the vote, which was driven by this committee asserting its jurisdiction. And the vote actually carried a majority of members. And but for this two-thirds majority requirement for expulsion, the sanity code would have remained in place and it would have been an outright win, not only for the sanity code, but for the NCAA's enforcement jurisdiction and authority. And I think that is really one of the most important things to come out of the entire sanity code debate. And as a practical matter, the with the death of the sanity code, you had this period between 1951 and 1956 before the NCAA explicitly went with this full athletic scholarship at a national level and with national agreement. But you had this five-year period of more Wild West maneuvering. But during that period, the NCAA, through pure blind luck and through bluff and bluster, really beefed up its enforcement and authority. And that really began to shape what became the modern NCAA. And in 1951 and 1952, three crucial events played out that really helped to transform the NCAA into a truly national regulatory authority that had some bite along with its bark. And the first of those was uh, the hiring of Walter Byers. So Byers became the first full-time NCAA 
CEO, and I've talked about buyers in prior episodes, but he was a businessman. He was a deal guy. He wanted to do deals, and he had a big ego. He had an authoritarian leadership style, and he was a tireless worker, and he basically ruled the NCAA with an iron fist between 1951 and 1987, and that's a a long tenure. And he came in with a Big Ten background. He had worked for the Big Ten. And the first NCAA office was really a joint office, a Big Ten NCAA office in Chicago. But Byers was almost immediately upon his hiring faced with two of the most consequential standoffs in NCAA history. And the first related to the NCAA's attempt to acquire an absolute monopoly over televised football. And that that monopoly was struck down in 1984 in this Board of Regents case. But how it came into existence is important because the NCAA just came in and under Walter Byers just steamrolled the interests of some schools who wanted to compete with the NCAA for televised football. And those included the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame. And Penn had been really a pioneer in exploiting television technology, and it had developed a relationship with a broadcast outlet in Philadelphia, a local product. And it had been televising games since the 1940s and at the same time filling Franklin Field, which had uh, 60,000 seat capacity. So Penn was just light years ahead of the curve and they were progressive with the TV technology. And that was also a time when the mainstream thinking about TV was really suspicious of its impact on the economics of big time college football because the belief was that if people People could watch it on TV, they wouldn't come to the games and wouldn't spend money to buy tickets or concessions or any of the other ways that the universities relied primarily on to make money. So the NCAA conducted a study, or I've actually had a third party conduct a study, on the extent to which TV would impact live attendance, and the result was murky. So the NCAA went with a kind of a restricted television plan in this 51-52 year. But as part of that, they wanted to be the exclusive negotiator, the exclusive market player in televised college football, and they essentially were saying to Penn, and then Notre Dame, which had its own product and a national brand. You've got to give up your television contracts and your television revenue. And if you don't, we're going to come after you. And in 1950, Penn had a contract with ABC for $150,000 to televise its games. And that was a lot of money in 1950. And Notre Dame had a deal with a company called Dumont. I'm not sure of their history or what became of them. But that was a $185,000 deal. And so the NCAA saying, you need to get out of the televised football business. We're taking it over. And if you don't fall in, we're going to take action. And so Penn fought back. Notre Dame was sitting on the sidelines, but Penn fought back. And their legal people were telling them that what the NCAA was doing was really difficult to defend under antitrust laws. The very same arguments that the CFA made in 1981, and which resulted in the Board of Regents decision in 1984. 
So Penn weighed its options and then entered into negotiations with ABC for the following year. So that would have been 1951, after this experimental year, where the NCAA basically got their foot in the door in the national takeover of the football television market. But Penn decides to go with a contract for about $180,000 with ABC. They announced their intention to go forward. And then the NCAA declares them a member not in good standing. And they didn't move to expel Penn, but they encouraged a boycott of Penn by schools who were already on their schedule for the 51 season or who might be. And that included four Ivy League schools, and all of them agreed not to play Penn. So Penn was really forced into either having their schedule fall apart and the future of their program in jeopardy, or to fall in line with the NCAA. And then they were looking at these antitrust issues. Do they sue? Do they try to persuade other schools to join with them to oppose this takeover of the market by the NCAA? But in the votes that were taken on going forward with the NCAA television plans, they were overwhelmingly in support. So in 1950, on this restricted plan, the vote to go forward with that plan and to prohibit any other schools from doing their own independent deals, that passed by a vote of 161 to 7. And then the following year, still with this belief that televised football had to be rationed so that it didn't interfere with gate receipts, the membership voted 163 to 8 to grant the NCAA the exclusive authority to put together a television package. And the weight of those votes really put Penn in a tough spot because they either sued under antitrust laws, they tried to go forward with a limited schedule with schools who agreed to play them, or they acquiesced. And ultimately, Penn and Notre Dame backed down and they basically forfeited their football empires to the NCAA. And on the back side of that stand down, not only did the NCAA acquire monopolistic control of the televised football market, but it also greatly enhanced its reputation as a legitimate and potent regulatory association at the national level. And that is so important. This is a national issue that required a national response. The NCAA framed it as a national issue and requiring uniform response and complete compliance. And they won. And that really enhanced their stature as a governing association. And then in this same time frame, there was a parallel issue that really enhanced the NCAA's enforcement jurisdiction and authority. And that arose in 1951 when a group of University of Kentucky basketball players were indicted on charges of point shaving. And in the early 1950s, Kentucky was one of the top teams in the country. Adolph Rupp, their legendary coach, was coming into his heyday. And this was a big story because a couple of the names that came up in connection with this scandal were among the most popular and most talented players on that Kentucky roster. And as the proceedings played out, it became 
clear that this was a real thing. And there had been point shaving and there was widespread corruption in the Kentucky program. And the NCAA was weighing its options. And Byers, in his book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, he devotes a, a chapter to this period. He calls it a new NCAA. And he talks at length about the Kentucky case. And he notes with some pride that that case resulted in the first true investigation case that the NCAA opened. And he called it case number one, the maiden effort of the newly created NCAA Subcommittee on Infractions. And he says that with some pride. And ultimately, his recommendation was the death penalty for the University of Kentucky program, at least for a year. And he was going to either ask the membership to vote on an outright ban or to encourage a boycott, much like he did with the Penn football situation. And at the same time, Byers was talking to the AD at Kentucky and the head of the Southeastern Conference. And on the table was this threat of expulsion. And ultimately, both the university and the conference at the commissioner level agreed to the ban. They voluntarily agreed to the ban. And that was viewed as a huge victory for the NCAA. They didn't didn't even have to go through the formal infractions process. They basically got what they wanted by sitting down and saying, look, we have this authority. You have some bad facts and we're coming after you. And that really changed the dynamic and cemented in the NCAA's authority. And you can't understand this because you have to remember how powerful Kentucky was in basketball in the 1950s. I mean, they were really the top dog, them and the City College of New York. And so taking on Kentucky, taking on Adolph Rupp, and then winning in a stand down without actually having to take any aggressive action really changed the nature of the NCAA. And that's why I think Byers titled that chapter, A New NCAA. And that segues into the next phase of this perfect storm between 1945 and 1956. And that is the continuation of this Wild West recruiting marketplace after the Sanity Code gets voted down. And there was an additional issue that cropped up that really forced the NCAA and the big-time football interests to take a good hard look at the nature of the athletic scholarship and the relationship, the fundamental relationship between the athletes and the universities. And that issue was, as described by Walter Byers, quote, the dreaded notion that NCAA athletes could be identified as employees by state industrial commissions and the courts. And Byers puts employees in italics there for emphasis. And he he makes that observation in the context of a discussion of how the market between 1951 and 1956 in the talent acquisition and inducement component of the big-time college sports business model was moving more and more towards the athletic scholarship. And this was true nationwide. It wasn't just a regional thing or a South versus Midwest and North. There was this growing consensus that the athletic scholarship where the primary, if not exclusive driving force was the athlete's athletic ability, talent, and labor. And a lot of these schools felt like they needed to go with that kind of scholarship because if they didn't, they were going to lose ground in the 
competitive advantage, disadvantage game. So that really took on a truly national flavor. And some of these institutions were only offering one-year scholarships. So another factor in this whole competitive advantage-disadvantage game was the length of the scholarship. And a one-year scholarship, renewable, gave the university and the coach enormous power because they could choose not to renew the scholarship if the athlete didn't pan out as an athlete in their athletic performance. So that was counterbalanced by schools who were offering four-year scholarships to really be competitive or enhance their competitive advantage in the market. And so they could bring in a high quality player and guarantee them four years of scholarship money. And even if they didn't pan out or they left the team, then they could stay at that university. And obviously, the more attractive of those two options from the university coach side is the one-year renewable contract. The problem with that is that starts to look a lot like a contract for hire, a renewable contract for hire. And in these workers' compensation claims and workers' compensation contexts, the fundamental threshold inquiry is whether or not the person claiming the benefit is an employee. And you have to be an employee to be entitled to workers' compensation. And that's why I mentioned this uh, Northwestern case in the last episode that I'm going to talk about in a subsequent episode. But that was the threshold criteria they had to meet in that case. And that was under federal law. A lot of these cases are under state law. And that threshold is really important. So from the NCAA standpoint, the closer that that arrangement between the athlete and the university looked like a one-year contract for hire, the greater the potential liability under workers' compensation laws. And in 1953, there were a couple of cases that were resolved in Colorado in courts that reached diametrically opposite conclusions. So one held that the nature of the relationship was indeed an employment relationship and that the injured athlete was entitled to workers' compensation benefits. And then the other case said no, and they were irreconcilable on their face, but pointed out the, the kind of treacherous territory that NCAA was on and that the schools were on in this battle to try to gain a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition and retention market. And the form of those scholarships was really important. But Byers, on the advice of his attorneys, they were trying to formulate some strategies to try to beat back this potential wave of litigation under workers' compensation laws. So one of the things that Byers did, and he says this outright, is that he invented the term the student-athlete. And the reason for that was that he wanted to have in NCAA literature, in their rule book, in their public comments, in every way that they talked about their enterprise, they wanted to be focused on the student part of the relationship between the university and the athlete. And here's how Byers put it in his book. And, and this is in a chapter titled 
full rides in the name of amateurism. And he talks about the interplay of all these things that were going on with the, the Wild West scholarship competition between 51 and 56, and then the introduction of this potential workers' compensation issue. So Byer says, quote, we crafted the term student athlete, and soon it was embedded in all NCAA rules and interpretations as a mandated substitute for such words as players and athletes. We told college publicists to speak of college teams, not football or basketball clubs, a word common to the pros. I really want to underscore Byer's admission in in that passage that I just read. Because what he was saying is, we're not going to look at the actual relationship between the athletes and the universities. We are going to find a way to describe it, dishonestly describe it in a way that serves our ulterior business interests. And that tactic, this tactic of using linguistic subterfuge to elevate characterization over reality is a tactic that the NCAA has perfected. It's an art form now. And in its defense of these antitrust suits and its pleas to Congress for these extraordinary protections and immunities under the guise of name, image, and likeness compensation, the NCAA is relying exclusively on how it describes its business model, not what the business model actually is. And so their whole house of cards is just built on a series of lies and purposeful misdirections. And what they're now saying to the United States Supreme Court and have been saying to Congress during this name, image, and likeness campaign that's a guise for the attainment of draconian federal immunities and protections, what they're saying is, we can call this whatever we want to, and you have to accept it because we're the only people who can decide what the business model of big-time college sports is. We're the only entity that can decide what amateurism is or what the student-athlete is or what the collegiate model is. And that's why I said in the earlier episode, the last episode, that the NCAA, this whole effort, this campaign for the Iron Throne is to avoid outside external regulators from analyzing at the factual level the true business model that the NCAA and Power Five have constructed. And Walter Byers' use of this made-up phrase as an immunity shield from that kind of scrutiny in in the workers' compensation context is the perfect example. And he just comes out and says it. And of course, you have to remember that uh, Byers' book needs to be read with some skepticism because he turned on a business that he created and a lot of these principles that he's criticizing, he really used his power and authority and the NCAA's credibility and authority to pursue for purely commercial purposes. So whenever you're doing that U-turn, crafting an entirely new narrative can be challenging. And I see that in Byers' book. But that said, Byers was the author of the student-athlete. He is in the best position to speak to its true purpose and why the NCAA invoked it, how the NCAA applied it, and how the NCAA has propagandized it. It's almost impossible to defend. And just to show you the power of the NCAA's capacity for putting an obviously fraudulent concept 
into the stream of public consciousness and discourse, I would ask you, when you hear the term student-athlete, what's your first response? And what does it mean to you? And does it impact your perception of the relationship between the athlete and the university? And the answer is going to be yes. You're very likely to have internalized it in, in precisely the way that the NCAA wants you to. And that's happened with federal judges. It's happened with U.S. senators. It's happened with state legislatures. And that is why I, in episode eight, I talked about all these invisible forces that drive decision-making among the crucial external regulators and how deferential they have been to NCAA principles. And that invisible deference is driven in large part by the this language that the NCAA has created that has simply become unchallengeable and it has breathtaking normative value. In fact, when you go to the NCAA Division I manual, this 450-page document, and you do a word search and you put in the phrase student-athlete, it appears over 2,300 times. It is everywhere. And the reason that that phrase is so ubiquitous in NCAA vocabulary is because it means, in translation, student-athlete equals not an employee. And that is one of the most essential features to the NCAA business model. And it's why when they went to Congress in 2019, under the guise of name, image, and likeness compensation, one of the three primary planks in its platform was a declaration under federal law that revenue-producing athletes could not be deemed employees of their university. I'll just say when it comes to the use of words as a roadmap for values, while the student-athlete term is used over 2,300 times in the NCAA manual, the term well-being makes 11 appearances. Gender equity makes five appearances. Non-discrimination makes three appearances. Sound academic standards makes four appearances. And competitive equity gets three appearances. And then you look at the other things that the NCAA really focuses on in that manual, which is written by lawyers for lawyers and designed in large part to simply enforce this labor cap. But you look at recruiting, that shows 309 times. Eligibility, 710 times. And financial aid, which is how they describe pay, 511 times. So there's no question from the, the true values of the NCAA, they are all built around portraying the relationship between the athlete and the university as something other than what it really is. And the rest of the manual, the rest of the rules that they have built to preserve this empire relate to enforcing this overarching compensation limit. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But this potential workers' compensation liability and litigation over employee versus student abated, but it didn't go away. In fact, in 1963, a Cal Poly football player was killed in a plane crash with a, traveling with the team. And his spouse, his surviving spouse, filed a claim for workers' compensation death benefits. And at the administrative level with the State Industrial Commission, the decedent's wife lost, but they appealed to a court in California, and that court reversed, and they looked at the nature of the payment that the 
athlete received, and it was a scholarship. It was in the form of a scholarship with monthly stipends, and the facts revealed that only football players received those kinds of scholarships. And so the court in the appeal said the only inference to be drawn from the evidence is that decedent received the scholarship because of his athletic prowess and participation. The form of remuneration is immaterial. And that is essentially what Justice Alito was saying in that clip that I played in the last episode. And he was saying, look, these guys are already being paid and the form of the payment really doesn't matter. If they are being compensated for their athletic skill, talent, and labor, then they are essentially employees and we're just dickering over the amount of the payment. And then there were a couple of cases in the 1980s in which state boards held that the athlete was not an employee. And then, of course, in 2014, you had this employee, not employee issue arise in a much different context, and that was a Northwestern case with the unionization attempt. But the issue hasn't been put to bed, and that's why I believe the NCAA is seeking that provision under federal law that would prohibit revenue-producing athletes from being deemed employees of their university. So, okay, let's then move in this 1945 to 1956 period to the discussion on how to resolve the battle that really was lost during the Sanity Code debate. And remember, as I mentioned earlier, between 1951 and 1956, there was a growing consensus that the full athletic scholarship was the way to go. And through a series of discussions and negotiations, ultimately in 1956, the NCAA adopted the full athletics scholarship as the uniform, one-size-fits-all form of compensation. And it's important to know that the discussion leading up to that vote and that consequential decision, and uh, Byers describes that single decision as one of the three most consequential events in the history of the NCAA and of college sports, because it was an open transition from any rational conceptualization of amateurism to open professionalism and pay for play. But as with the Carnegie Report's use of amateurism as a way to cure corruption and scandal, many of those involved in the discussions leading up to the adoption of the full athletic scholarship in 56 believed that it would reduce cheating and scandal. And this one-size-fits-all uniform package was appealing on those grounds. But as Byers points out in his book, and as history has proven time and time again, amateurism has had absolutely zero impact on the reduction of any of the ills in college sports, regardless of how who they come from or how they're defined. But most of them relate to cheating and scandal and rule breaking. And all of that is designed to gain an advantage, whether it's fair or unfair, in the talent acquisition market. And the NCAA and all of its interests have clung to that false belief religiously whenever it is faced with systemic corruption and scandal, at least by NCAA standards. And that was true most recently with the Commission on College Basketball, which in its report framed the issues around the preservation of the collegiate model. 
And the bottom line conclusion was that we needed to double down on that component of the business model. And in that context, I believe the commission was using the collegiate model as a substitute for amateurism. And we're going to talk a lot more about the collegiate model, but amateurism simply isn't the solution. And there is where there's incentive to cheat, there will be cheating. Where there's incentive to bend the rules, there will be rule bending. And that incentive exists and it's constant and it's chronic and it is powerful. And that is to gain an advantage or avoid losing one in the talent acquisition market. And so when I look at the business of big time college sports and I look at the important milestones and the mosaic, the historical mosaic, I believe that Walter Byers is correct that this single decision to completely abandon any principles of amateurism in the exchange of goods and services between the athlete and the institution is transformative in the business model. And we now have an open pay for play system and the compensation is limited at the value of an athletics scholarship. And again, going back to how the U.S. Supreme Court in Austin was framing the issue, at least the four justices that spoke on these terms, and those were Alito and Kagan and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And all four of them looked at this cap, this basically uh, uniform, nationally imposed cap. And that's the other thing that's really important about this 1956 decision. It was a national scholarship limit. It was an agreement across all institutions in the NCAA, and it was enforced at the national level through the NCAA's newly acquired enforcement jurisdiction and authority. And that those two things, that price-fixing component of the 1956 scholarship, and then the NCAA's acquisition of monopolistic control over governance and the marketplace results in a what would be a per se violation of antitrust laws in any other context outside of sports. And that is really where the, the issue sits in the Supreme Court right now. And are they going to carve out an exception for college sports or are they going to hold college sports to the same standards that any other business would be held to? And really until the abandonment suit in 2009 to 2015, and some of the changes that were made to enhance the benefits package for athletes that really occurred independent of the suit itself and the remedy that was offered. But up until then, the NCAA drew a very clear line in the sand, and they enforced to the death and defended to the death any payment above the value of the athletic scholarship as then defined, which was set below the full cost of attendance. And it's really important to remember that when that scholarship limit was challenged as fundamentally unfair in this white suit that was filed in 2006, the NCAA said outright to a federal court and defended in federal court the scholarship limit that was set below the full cost of attendance, and they claimed that any payment above that amount, so if the athletes got the full cost of attendance under federal guidelines, that that would amount to pay for play. They came out and said it. In fact, that was the primary purpose of their defense in that lawsuit, that this modest increase in the value of the overall scholarship that was available to 
all other students that that was going to convert the entire business of college sports from an amateur model to a professional model. And then just for historical clarity, I should note that after the NCAA went to these full and true athletics scholarships in 1956, there were important changes to that scholarship structure that created an even more professionalized relationship. So when this scholarship was brought into the NCAA business model in 1956, it had some guardrails that ameliorated the potential abuses of this obviously professionalized relationship. So the scholarships could be awarded for up to four years, so they weren't one-year renewables. The scholarships could not be withdrawn if the recipient chose not to play. Recruiting coaches could not promise a high school prospect that he was going to get that scholarship because the decision wasn't made by the coaches or the athletics department. It was made by a regular university scholarship committee, which awarded aid to all students. So those were important safeguards, but it didn't take time for them to be eroded or eliminated. So heading into the 1970s, when big-time powerful football interests were starting to rise up and assert their collective might in what became a hostile takeover of NCAA governance and the very structure of the NCAA itself, they also engaged in a hostile takeover of the 1956 scholarships. And in 1973, when the three divisions were created to place the big-time powerful football interests outside of the rest of the NCAA membership, the athletic scholarship became a one-year renewable scholarship. And I think that was a unanimous voice vote. There was very little opposition to that. And then you also had the removal of the award of these scholarships from general university committees to the athletics departments and, in practice, to the head coach. So this recruiting got narrowed into and funneled into the athletics departments, and then they had arrangements with the regular admissions departments and offices, and they worked together, but the threshold determination of eligibility for a, an athletic scholarship was made in the athletics department, not at the general university level. And with the one-year renewable scholarship, coaches acquired enormous power over the athletes because the coach could choose not to renew a scholarship for any reason. Even if the athlete was a great student and had met the eligibility requirements and was making progress as a college student, if the coach thought that that player wasn't contributing to the team and to the success of the team for any reason, he could simply not renew the scholarship. And that just gives the coach iron-fisted control over the athlete's future and their standing, not just as a, a member of an athletic team, a football team or basketball team, but as a university student. And that is a power imbalance that's difficult for a lot of people to understand. And that power dynamic is so built in now to the culture of big-time college sports, even with this autonomy classification and some schools going to four-year scholarships. The coaches still have this iron-fisted control, and they can get rid of a player in a number of ways. And even if they can't non-renew, they can make life so difficult for that 
athlete that they will leave. And that is something that really hasn't gotten the proper attention in this whole business model. And I'll just say this, that in some of these name, image, and likeness proposals. And Roger Wicker's bill is was like this. And I've seen some other proposed name, image, and likeness laws that notwithstanding any of the superficially athlete-friendly provisions, an athlete still had to abide by team rules and the coaches' rules and policies. And that is a loophole that basically swallows the whole rule because it vests in the coaches who have this enormous power already. The authority to call a player in and say, hey, look, your name, image, and likeness campaign and all this time you're spending on social media or doing advertisements for the local auto dealer, they're detracting from your performance here and you're not getting the job done here and we need you to refocus and be a team player. And that is such a powerful dynamic. And it's something that gets lost in all of this us versus them and this displacement theory where revenue athletes are going to make all this money and then these athletes, white athletes and non-revenue sports are going to have opportunities, participation opportunities taken away from them. I think that there's going to be far less activity with these high-level football and men's basketball players than you think because of the coach's influence and the need for these players to stay focused on their 50-hour-a-week job. That's going to be less true for the non-revenue-producing athletes. And I don't think those athletes, if they're fully exploiting their name, image, and likeness potential, are going to get called into the coach's office to get the talk. And the talk is, you focus on me and and my team and not on your personal individual monetary interests. They're not going to get that talk. The revenue producing athletes are going to get that talk. And that's one of these invisible dynamics, again, that nobody talks about, but it will have an important impact on how that market plays out if it ever exists. So just to recap, This period, 1945 to 1956, again, is one of the most important eras in the history of college sports because so many transformative events occurred. But looking back on it now, the most important things that came out of that consequential era were the creation of the NCAA as a legitimate and powerful, very powerful national regulatory association and national. I emphasize national because that's so important because this thing that really binds all of the commercial interests under the NCAA umbrella is national agreement on the fixed price of labor. So that national agreement and enforcement authority combined with this 1956 change in the athletic scholarship that essentially put a cap on the cost of labor, those two things coming out of this perfect storm of 1945 to 1956 are the fundamental pillars of the modern business model. And again, I said this in the last episode, and it's so important. Those two things together are really indefensible under antitrust laws. And while the NCAA lost its monopoly over college football through in the Board of Regents decision in 1984, it still has a monopoly on this overarching compensation limit. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road for the Supreme Court and its deliberations on what they want to do in this Austin case. Okay, so let's close this episode out. I just want to thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have you along for the ride. And I hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 